0: Well, as we began last week looking at these two chapters, chapters uh, 21 and 22, we have in these two chapters various cycles of challenge and response. Jesus performs actions that challenge Israel's religious leaders. In response, they challenge his authority. Jesus then tells three parables which challenge their identity as the people of God. And not to be undone, the religious leaders have three questions intended to challenge Jesus' standings and trap him in his words. They're not just curious, hey, we really want to learn here. No, they want to get him on the horns of a dilemma and expose him and discredit him before the crowd. Well, last week we examined the first of those questions and it concerned paying the imperial tax. Tonight... The challenges concern marriage at the resurrection and the greatest commandment. And each challenge comes from a different group and each raises a current issue in theology or ethics. And again, as we'll see, it's not just, hey, Jesus, we we need information here and and Matthew hasn't merely given given them to us as, okay, look up this section in your Bible when you want to know about resurrection and marriage in heaven. Each of these addresses foundational questions for what it means to be the people of God, for what God is doing in his world, how we can love and serve him. So let's jump back into the cycle tonight. Let's look at these last two challenges and then Jesus's final response. So first we have this question about marriage at the resurrection in verses 23 through 33. And this question comes to Jesus courtesy of the Sadducees. Who, according to verse 23, do not believe in a resurrection. And interestingly, this is the majority opinion among the elites. So when you think of the Sanhedrin, that ruling class there, those that great synagogue or great court there uh, that governed God's people, this was one of the this was the other main. Theological viewpoint within the Sanhedrin. You would have had those who affirmed resurrection and you would have had those who did not. And most of the priests and probably the elders would have supported this view. Again, that's based on looking at literature from the period, historical records and what have you. But those who study those things come to that conclusion that the elites, the ruling class for the most part, followed the Sadducees in rejecting the idea of a future Bodily resurrection now again, this is among the elites, so, according to Josephus, that would have been a minority movement over all within Israel. Again, this is the wealthy, the powerful classes, so they had little popular appeal. Uh, They were connected to the leading priestly families. They were in control of the temple establishment, so not the kind of people that necessarily had a large following amongst Israelites in general. Again, the popular groups there. The Pharisees were much more influential among them. Now, you might wonder, why didn't they believe In a resurrection well interestingly in their judgment the Pentateuch the first five books of the bible did not explicitly teach resurrection and for the Sadducees that was their canon they accepted those five books as inspired and none others but follow this They didn't reject the others for anti-supernatural reasons. They weren't liberal as we think of liberal theology at the turn of the 18th century and what have you. It wasn't an anti-supernatural bias, so to speak. Rather, it was somewhat of a conservative reason. Follow me here. God gave Moses the Pentateuch. And we want to conserve that. We don't want to go adding on these later books to what God so clearly gave to Moses. Furthermore, if you're always focusing on life after death, maybe that takes you away from obeying the law of Moses. God gave you commandments that regulate your life. You need to focus on those, not always thinking about a hereafter. So it's interesting in that the the Sadducees, though they denied resurrection, did so on somewhat conservative grounds. And meanwhile, the Pharisees, who were quicker to affirm resurrection, also held to a larger canon. Canon that more corresponds to the canon that we accept as Christians today. Furthermore, the Pharisees wanted to take what the Canon taught, what the, what the purity laws were, and expand it to all of God's people, which got them identified as slightly more progressive. They seem to be playing fast and loose with the biblical uh, commands. So kind of interesting how that goes against, perhaps even the opposite of what we might expect. But nonetheless, these Sadducees come to Jesus with this theological question. Now, it's not a political question like we saw last week. Imperial tax, hot-button political issue. This is more theological. But nonetheless, this is still a question that can divide the crowd, that can divide the people of God. If Jesus affirms resurrection, believes that doctrine so popular amongst the people, well, he's going to look silly to the ruling classes. But here's the thing, he may also look silly to the people. Why? Don't they believe this? Yes, but look at the silly scenario that the Sadducees pose. If Jesus just gives a straight answer to that question, which puts him right in that camp, well he might look, end up looking silly in everybody's eye. So what will Jesus do? We'll see that in just a moment. But first, let's understand the principle that this scenario is founded on. One in which a woman is widowed and then married to her deceased husband's brother. This is known as the Mosaic Institution of Leverite Marriage. And it was designed to provide for a continuing family line. If a man gets married and dies childless, his name will pass away. So in order to preserve his name, And also to preserve his inheritance. Remember in the Old Testament, the land allotments? That was tied to your family, your tribe, your clan, or whatnot. In order to prevent families and their land from disappearing in Israel, you had this institution where the brother would marry the wife, raise up children in his dead brother's name. And Josephus, by the way, a contemporary of Jesus a few years later, but around that general time period, He also notes this could be a means of providing for a destitute widow. Uh, Women in that culture didn't just go out and get jobs or have any kind of assistance. So it could be a way of keeping a widow uh, from completely falling through the cracks. Now, what's interesting about this institution is it's questionable how much it was actually practiced. So the law is there. But think about that story in Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. The brothers there are reluctant to raise up children for her. Think of Ruth's story. Remember, there's a nearer kinsman than Boaz. Well, so he doesn't want to do it. So there is some question did Israel even ever follow this actual uh, law? Nonetheless, this is the scenario that the Sadducees present. And one last interesting note, that the Sadducees, when they tell the story uh, that the brother should raise up uh, children, for the deceased brother. That's the same word that's translated elsewhere as resurrection. So it's almost as if in their minds, this is how life continues. You just, you just marry, the, marry a new person and continue children. That's what it means to live on forever. Not this idea of resurrection. So therefore they come with this scenario that is intentionally absurd. Remember, they don't believe this doctrine. So they want to try to make it look silly. What about this woman who was married to seven different men throughout her life, all brothers? Who is she going to be joined to in the resurrection? That's the basic scenario. By the way, side note, and I'm stealing this from Scott McKnight, who bases it on the research of others such as Lynn Kohick and Amy Jill Levine. But think, a woman married to several different men throughout her life. Can you think of another woman in the Bible in that situation? The Samaritan woman had several different husbands. Now, we always assume it's because she couldn't stay married. Could it be that they all had died? And when you say, yeah, but you know, Jesus draws attention to the fact that she's living with a man who's not her husband. Could that have been a Roman soldier? Who made her his concubine? Could it simply be a brother who was caring for her? That has nothing to do with tonight's message, but it's an interesting side thought that maybe deserves some further study. So back to this passage here. They present the scenario to Jesus, and they ask him his question. Now once again, Jesus answers the question in a way where you do get an answer. Like if we want to know what the Savior thinks. He tells us. He doesn't hide it from us. Yet, he doesn't answer the question in a way as to fall into the trap. He doesn't fall into any particular camp. And I say that because his answer goes to the foundational question. And he tells them, you have misunderstood two things, the nature of the resurrection, and you've misread the Pentateuch. You've misread God's word." And let's look at those first on misunderstanding the resurrection. They are missing out on the idea that God's design for his creation is for it to have eternal life. Notice he says that to them. The angels in heaven, they are eternal. That's why people neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why do you need to marry and have children on this life. That's how you sustain life after death. And maybe the Sadducees, especially those who are in power and in control, maybe that that was all they could see. Just keep that temporal life going. But God's design for his creation is bigger than that. When God created Adam and Eve, they were to grow in their obedience. They were to grow into maturity. And they were to take God's glory, which was there with them, In that garden, in Eden, and spread it out to the world. And thus, creation would mature and grow and arrive at a place, theologians usually conclude, where there would be no more temptation. Sometimes people ask, well, what if like a great-great-great-great-great-grandkid sin? The idea is probably that this was temporary. As Adam and Eve grew into obedience, eventually the time of testing would be over and creation would be brought to maturity. Enjoying the glory of God and free from the presence of temptation. That was God's design. And they have failed to see that design. They don't see what God is doing in His creation. And so while we look at Jesus' statement, hey, there's no more marriage in heaven. And maybe to some that sounds like bad news because God has given them a wonderful marriage. Marriage is a gift. I I have a friend who always says, this passage has got to be allegorical, right? I'm just holding out hope. Okay, marriage is a wonderful gift. And yet it is a gift that God designed to point to something beyond itself. God gives love. God gives intimacy in a marriage that is fulfilled in heaven. A oneness between the Creator and His creation. The loss of any kind of shame or distance. But this perfect joining together between God and His creation. Marriage points to that. And thus, when that is fulfilled in heaven, we no longer need the signpost. We finally experience the greatest love that even the best marriage on earth can only point to. And the Sadducees are missing it. They just don't see just how good God's design for his creation is and what is it is intended to do. And then second, they misunderstand the scriptures. They don't understand that the scriptures, and not just any scripture, they're supreme scriptures. The Pentateuch itself teaches Resurrection. And so Jesus cites here from Exodus 3, the, the encounter between God and Moses at the burning bush. He uses it to support resurrection. Listen, there's a lot clearer text that Jesus could have appealed to. But the Sadducees may not have accepted them as legitimate. So he goes on their terms and using the scriptures they accept, argues for the resurrection. And here's Jesus' point. It, it, It may not even be immediately clear to us at first the point he's making. But listen to one commentator who writes this. The covenant by which God binds himself to them, to his people, is too strong to be terminated by their death. To be associated with the living God is to be taken beyond the temporary life of earth into a relationship which lasts as long as God lasts. Those with whom the living God identifies himself cannot be truly dead. And therefore they must be alive with him after their earthly life is finished. Jesus cites the words, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's covenantal language. I will be your God. You will be my people. And as I've often made this point too, so we won't go into the details tonight. When God makes a covenant with his creation, it's to fix the mess they've made and get them back on the path to obedience, maturity, glory, and salvation, and that covenant cannot be extinguished with death or else it's not fulfilling its purpose. And so Jesus deduces this idea and says this is what scripture teaches and you should have known it, and he astonishes the crowds because he's answered the question. He's affirmed resurrection, but he's done it in a way where everybody, every party, every group, should recognize and accept. So that is Jesus there answering the question of marriage at the resurrection. And again, not just answering a question or giving us information, but saying this is what it means to be God's people. This is where everything is going. All right, let's look at the second uh, question tonight. Third, in, in the group of three, the greatest commandment in verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, like the first question in the series of three, this one involves the Pharisees. Though in the first question, it was the Pharisees with the Herodians. Here just the Pharisees are mentioned. And notice it says, you know, they saw that Jesus had just answered the Sadducees. You know, he bested the Sadducees. And he affirmed a Pharisaic doctrine. So maybe they're like, all right, this is our moment. This is our end to come in and show uh, that we're the right group. Let's gain the upper hand here. So they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And that, again, would have been a familiar discussion. Again, a lot of these familiar discussions, a lot of Jesus' answers, not radically different from what we find other groups saying at the time. The rabbis discussed these heavy and light commandments, like which one is the priority? It's not that, oh, we can just ignore these, but which ones take priority? You often see the rabbis trying to summarize the essence of the law. What is the big priority? What's the big idea that controls everything else? And they want to come to Jesus and say, Okay, you've got this law. You've got these 613 commandments. But what's the thrust? What's the big road? If we just drive on this road, it'll get us to the destination God wants us to get to. And it'll connect all the little side roads as well. Well, Jesus answers, Disciples must love God with every aspect of their being. And they must love their neighbor as they love themselves. And by the way, those are both Old Testament citations. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, both from the Pentateuch. So still thinking of the Sadducees and making sure uh, that they hear this authority. Jesus takes two commandments. And says this is the essence of the law. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Which again is is a way of saying this is the essence of the law. This is what it's all about. This is where everything is going. First, love God with everything you have. One commentator puts it like this. One is to love God. With all that one is and has. And then we are to treat our neighbors the way we want others to treat us. Jesus says, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Is that a command to love yourself? I think Jesus is recognizing that naturally our interests take place over that of others. That's what comes natural to humans trying to stay alive. And he says it's got to be the opposite. That the interests of others would take place over yours. So to love God with everything that you are, and then to love others the way you would want to be treated, that is the essence of the law. And we might say, well, why love? Of all the commandments, you know, again, Jesus isn't just making stuff up. He's seeing a trajectory in the Old Testament. Why does he put his finger on love? Well, again, One commentator writes, in the first place, by focusing on love rather than on more tangible regulations to be obeyed, it lifts the discussion above merely adjudicating between competing rules and gives the priority to a principle which has potential application to virtually every aspect of religious and communal life. You see, when you make a specific commandment, locks it into that kind of application, that kind of time, that kind of people group. But when you have this principle of love, that can be sown throughout the whole thing. And so love becomes this lens. We, We put the glasses of love on and we use those lens to understand God's commandments. And that gives us an idea of how his whole word, his whole program works together. And as i said... This isn't just Jesus saying, all right, Bible answer time. Here's where you look up when you want to know this topic. This informs Israel, and so us as well, on how to be the people of God. Again, Adam and Eve, they're the image of God. But it goes astray. They, they were to image God to the creation. And that got messed up. What do we read in uh, books like Ephesians and Colossians that we're being renewed according to the image of our creator? Ephesians, that the church is the fullness of the presence of Christ in the world. That vocation still is there for us to fulfill. And now we can do it through Christ. We can image God to the world. So how do we do that? By loving him and by loving others. That is the vocation that God has given to us as his people. A challenge to Israel and a challenge to us. I continue to be challenged reflecting on these commandments. God would take those commandments of love and say... This is what it's all about. I mean, I just think of all the things I could emphasize in living for Christ or in ministry. And God says, put these in the driver's seat. And that's what it will mean to be the people of God. So, which is the greatest command? Now, let's come to the last section, verses 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They had three questions for Jesus, and he answered them. And so now he asked them one question that they can't answer. Remember, it's much like his question on John the Baptist's authority. And again, Jesus is going to do something familiar to their time. The rabbis would often say, Okay, we've got these two texts. How do they work together? got these two ideas. How do we resolve a discrepancy? Now, Jesus never actually resolves it for us. He just asks a question. He likes to do that. But the answer isn't too hard to work out with the Savior's help. And the question revolves around the identification of the Messiah with the son of David. So that was kind of standard understanding in their day. The Messiah figure in the Old Testament, not disputed that there was one. A lot of disagreement on what he would look like. But all pretty much everybody agreed Messiah figure in the Old Testament. And he will be a son of David. Kind of bringing the Davidic picture there to its ideal fulfillment. Well, Jesus cites Psalm 110, verse 1. And again, this psalm was understood to be a messianic psalm. This is a psalm describing Messiah. Agreed that David was the author of the psalm. And Jesus cites this psalm and apparently challenges the idea that Jesus is the son of David. But he's not challenging that idea itself. He's challenging the idea... Is that all there is to the Messiah? Is he merely the son of David? Or is there more to him than just that? Again, getting the people to realize who he himself is. Alright, well what's the dilemma here? Jesus cites Psalm 110. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the dilemma is based on the two uses of Lord in this passage. It doesn't come through in Matthew, because Matthew is translating from Greek. But if you were to look up Psalm 110.1, which is translated from the Hebrew, you would see the first occurrence of Lord is in all caps, and the second is not when the old testament translates the hebrew name for god yahweh once pronounced as jehovah it brings it into the old excuse brings it into english in all caps so the lord all caps yahweh god is speaking the words sit at my right hand until i put your enemies under your feet well to whom does he speak those words? He speaks them to my Lord, David says. And that second occurrence of Lord, the person to whom Yahweh is speaking, is the Hebrew word Adon or Adonai, often translated as Lord or Master. Now, sometimes a title for God, but not always. And again, it's understood that when David refers to the Lord there, he is referring to the Messiah. God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus says, alright, if David is writing this song, and David says that Yahweh, David's God, says to David's master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, how is it that David then can be the ancestor of the Messiah. How can the ancestor of the Messiah turn around and say, No, the Messiah is my master. So Jesus asks the question, If David himself calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now again, Jesus doesn't tell us the answer, but it isn't difficult to work out. If David is calling the Messiah his Lord, then the Messiah is more than merely the son of David. It's, it's a simple explanation. The Messiah exists before David. The Messiah transcends David. The Messiah is uniquely favored by God, and that God invites him to sit on his right hand. He's sharing God's throne and thus sharing in God's identity. He's sharing in God's power. He's He's sharing in God's righteousness. He's sharing in God's reign. So the Messiah must be more than a human. But here's the thing, he isn't less either. So he'll be God and he'll be man. And he will be all that in one person. And by the way not only will he be king if we were to keep reading in psalm 110 we see god fighting for his messiah god dominating his enemies but also this messianic king will be a priest after the order of melchizedek so messiah will be both king and priest and while that was a no-no in judaism the author of hebrews finds a way to work that out whereby god satisfies his own requirements. And that's the implication that Jesus wants his hearers to draw out. That he invites them to draw out. Surely one who is the Lord of David, the most distinguished of all historical Israelites, as R.T. France writes, he must be himself more than just another human king. And again, what do I say? That Jesus here, leads the question unanswered. He wants them to work it out. By the way, at his trial, they'll say, Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he will say, I am. So he finally does get him around to answering this question. So, what then should we take away from this as the people of God? I think you can put all three paragraphs together tonight and say they are simply inviting us to celebrate the person and the power of jesus that the whole focus of our lives all the focus of our worship all the focus of the ministry of the church should be the lord jesus christ why because he's god because he's love because he's renewing his creation he's saving us from our sins that's something to celebrate that he is the king who has authority over our lives And yet lays down his life for us. That commands us to love. And shows us the way of love. Who satisfies us with good things. But satisfies us more. Than even marriage. Or anything else in this life. Could ever satisfy us with. And that is worthy of our greatest obedience. So go out friends and I. And celebrate and enjoy Christ this week. And I'll pray you know his grace. You know that satisfaction of soul. That he alone gives. And that we then image him. To our neighbors. So let's pray as we close out tonight. Father in heaven, thank you for the people of God gathered here to hear your word. What a privilege here late in the day as the sun's going down. What a great privilege to worship you, to be together in your presence, to preach and teach your word to your people. Forgive us of our sins. Take away our blinders. Forgive us when we don't love. Forgive us when we don't worship. Thank you for Christ who is so merciful and invites us into this life. So, Lord, help us this week to follow you, to image you, to love you, to love others, to find our satisfaction in you, to worship and celebrate you, and to know your grace. Keep us safe this week. Meet whatever needs may come up for your people this week. Make us to know the rich sense of your presence. And we pray these things and thank you in Jesus' name.